<clears throat> Welcome, everyone, um, to the Atlanta Council. I'm Barry Pavel. I'm a senior vice president here and um, director of the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security. Uh, this is the second workshop we've hosted on exploring the ways and means of strengthening transatlantic as well as trans-Pacific uh, cooperation on Asian issues, but also on crucial um, global uh, policy challenges. We, we here at the Atlantic Council, we certainly see strengthening this type of cooperation as increasingly necessary to meet challenges that really cross-cut uh, the global system and cross-cut a number of our functional uh, and regional boundaries that we're also comfortable with. Our previous workshop um, on this project in January was focused on the global commons, trade, finance, and international institutions. We also see similar challenges to global norms. However, uh, those faced by Europe regarding, in particular, uh, Russian activities um, uh, across the broad expanse of the European continent, um, as well as in Asia regarding China's maritime activism to change the status quo with island building uh, and other activities uh, surrounding the territorial disputes. Uh, in many ways, um, some have said that Putin has ripped up the 1990 Paris Accords, committing Russia to its current borders, uh, China and its activities uh, not uh, conforming with the UN Law of the Sea Treaty, of which it is a member, the US is not, before I hear people say that. <laughs> uh, and more recently, the ruling of the International Court of Appeals at the Hague, which rejected its territorial claims. These are just two examples of challenges to the order, uh, the global rules-based order, and I'm sure most of you are aware of, of many others as well, and that's why we're here today. There are two very urgent challenges, in our view, today that cut across um, regions, and one of those is Syria and one of those is North Korea. Syria, with its um, sectarian and civil conflicts, uh, refugee flows that are creating some of the greatest challenges to, to the European order since World War II. Um, ISIS, um, as well as Syria, showing that you can't really ignore the Middle East. Um, it, it comes to visit you, uh, as our, the Atlantic Council's recent Middle East Strategy Task Force under Madeleine Albright and Steve Hadley uh, suggested as one of its primary premises. And I'm sure, as Ellen will make clear, Atlantic-Pacific cooperation is critical to move toward uh, resolution, or at least even management, of some of the challenges that, that the Middle East order itself is, is facing. North Korea, I'm sure most of you are expert in that. Um, we, we think it's at a tipping point. Uh, certainly, if you look ahead five to 10 years, an ICBM capability. Uh, threatening the entire U.S. homeland, which is an entirely new form of threat, um, although a, a very daunting threat still, nonetheless, to our core allies in Asia, which I'm sure we'll uh, talk about today. Lastly, in the absence of nuclear security summits that were initiated by the Obama administration, um, how can we sustain progress in reducing everyone's worst nightmare? And that is the question of nuclear terrorism, which I know was high on the minds of President Bush during his administration. I personally know it was high on the mind of President Obama during his administration, and I'm certain it's also very high in the mind of President Trump. So this is a problem that's not going away, and how do we uh, deal with this mutual challenge among the United States, Asia, and Europe? Um, uh, Bob Gallucci is here. He's been a leading force in this effort in his career um, to give us his thoughts on that. Uh, before I turn to the panel, I'll briefly introduce them, but I think you have the materials that have their bio, so I won't go into great detail.
but I will go into some detail. Ellen Leipson uh, is a colleague that I love to work with. She's a distinguished fellow and president emeritus, emeritus of the Stimson Center. She joined Stimson in 2002 after 25 years of government service, including as vice chair of the National Intelligence Council. She served on the State, State Department's policy planning staff and most recently was the author of the first Atlantic Council regional-oriented strategy paper last fall on a new approach to U.S.-Iranian relations, which I strongly commend uh, reading. Uh, Francois Godemont is the director of, European, is of the European Council on Foreign Relations, Asia and China program, and a senior policy fellow there. He's a professor of political science at Sciences Po in Paris, uh, as well as a research associate at the Asia Center, which he founded in 2005. He's also consulted for the French policy planning staff, is a longtime professor, and numerous other uh, impressive affiliations. Uh, Haji Izumi is professor of international relations at Tokyo International University. In 1987, he assumed the post of associate professor of the University of Shizuoka in Japan. Um, and he also has been director of the University's Center for Korean Studies and a visiting scholar at Harvard. Ambassador Robert Gallucci is distinguished professor in, in the practice of diplomacy at Georgetown University. He was dean of the School of Foreign Service for 13 years. He then became president of the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. He was an ambassador at large and special envoy for the State Department where he dealt directly with the threats of proliferation of ballistic missiles and weapons of mass destruction and was the chief U.S. negotiator during the North Korean nuclear crisis of 1994, among many other very, very impressive accomplishments. Um, with that, I think I will turn to uh, uh, Ellen Lapson first to address instability in the Middle East, and then we'll go in order of the, where, where the panelists are sitting here. So first, Ellen, would love to hear from Thanks. you. Thanks, Barry. Good morning, everybody. So uh, we've all struggled a little bit conceptually with how to grab this big idea that you all have <laughs> and apply it to uh, the different uh, parts of the world that we know best. Uh, I do think we're in a confusing moment of whether the demands of the world's problems make us go big, so more inclusive, bigger architecture, or whether the focus is more inside regions and inside major countries. So that I think we have tension here between whether problem solving is more likely to happen at the regional level or even the regional hegemon, uh, the, the dominant player or players within regions uh, taking the lead. So we've struggled a little bit with whether Europe at this moment is ready to go big uh, when it's so preoccupied with its own problems and whether Asia also sees, its, sees the international environment as uh, creating an opportunity, if you will, for Asia to be a leader in its own right, not necessarily uh, tethered to other uh, major continents of the world. So just, and I think that the other thing that I hope we'll uh, sort of sharp, try to sharpen our thinking as the morning goes on is are we talking about Pacific cooperation with China in or China out? Um, because I think there's very different uh, approaches you can take. You can either look at you know, all the friendly, like-minded countries in which Korea, Japan, uh, Australia, and India would be part of this club, or you could be uh, thinking much more inclusively um, that Pacific cooperation doesn't mean anything unless China is in. So, I mean, I, I think that some of those are the, the sort of bigger questions um, uh, to try to, to manage this problem. So I thought it might be best to just look at how does the Middle East in all of its chaos right now look out at 
Asia and Europe, and do they see opportunities for cooperation? And I guess my first point is um, that they still see the United States as central to the role that outsiders play, but with declining confidence that the U.S. will continue to play this you know, all-important uh, facilitator role. So on the one hand, your concept of greater Atlantic and Pacific cooperation, I think, is contingent on the United States playing that bridging role, that only if the U.S. chooses to play a, a leadership role does this make sense. Uh, because I don't think that you're, although I'd like to just leave as a plan B, could we imagine uh, Europe, either in the EU context or individual major powers, uh, reaching out to some Asian powers and creating some informal ad hoc cooperation on the Middle East or on other regions um, without the U.S. necessarily being the organizer and the facilitator of such cooperation. I think that's less likely, but I think we should have it as an alternative uh, way of thinking about this. So, you know, the Middle East is a mess, as we all know. The Syria crisis has become a global preoccupation. Um, for the most part, we see China in most of the deliberations that involve international cooperation on solving the Middle East problem by virtue of their uh, being a permanent member of the Security Council. So when people try to talk about the Iran negotiations as Iran and the West, it really wasn't. It was Iran and the international community, and one major Asian power was in the mix, um, but not Asia in any collective sense. So China gets a seat at the table automatically when there's uh, that level of international cooperation to solve the Middle East problems. But in general, I would say, what we're witnessing now is the Middle East major countries, the big ones, Egypt, Iran, Saudi Arabia, maybe Iraq, um, a little bit tired of the US and Europe being the external players that are supposed to provide them more security and sort of underperforming, if you will. I mean, I think there is a general view that these great powers of the 20th century are losing confidence, losing capacity, losing uh, interest. They perceive on the horizon that the Asians are going to become more important. They are not yet ready to transfer their uh, true trust and, and confidence in any single Asian country or group of Asian countries, but they are certainly opening all those channels. So we see major Middle Eastern countries. I mean, the Saudis have been sending kids to learn Arabic for, for to learn Chinese for more than a decade now. I mean, there is there is growing interdependence. We should not be naive. We should not be complacent. The Asian powers are on their own establishing strategic partnerships with uh, major Middle Eastern countries very much short of taking on the diplomatic and security responsibilities that the U.S. has. They don't want to replace the U.S., but they do want, uh, I think there is a mutual interest in, in building uh, deeper ties. So um, um, I think they see Europe and the United States as 20th century, and I think they see Asia as 21st century, and they are certainly going to open uh, and be open to um, greater collaboration with Asian powers. Having said that, let me just repeat, for now, for at least the next decade ahead, I think they still see the United States as the preeminent power, and they are confused by the signals they're getting from the Trump administration of whether the U.S. intends to stay in and be a robust uh, f mediator, facilitator, or 
whether the United States plans to plus up its military strength and es essentially diminish all the other attributes of American power in the region. Um, I, uh, so let me just quickly go. I think Israel and Iran have always had a strategy where they wanted to reach out to both Europe and Asian powers. Um, Israel, I think, has done very well in developing economic, uh, st strategic economic interaction with Asia. And, and Iran also, um, and particularly since Iran now sees the post-Jikpoa sanctions regime as um, insufficient, that they are disappointed that there wasn't more sanctions relief, and therefore they are even more reliant on their trading relationships and their investment coming from Asian countries. So Israel and Iran, I see, as always having had a very interesting um, uh, desire to deepen ties to Asia. The Sunni Arabs, I think, have been slower to um, see, to be able to articulate any major shift, but I do think it's coming. Um, one last point uh, I should make is that I think in this moment um, of uncertainty about America's uh, willingness to sustain uh, its leadership role in institutions and in multilateralism, and a, a, what we see is a stronger preference for the United States working bilaterally with countries that it likes, if you will, um, I do think we see the Asians more optimistic about their ability to set their own agenda than the Europeans are. So I think what we have is a, an asymmetry here of, of confidence and desire to take on more responsibility. Mm -hmm. So I, I think I'll stop there and we can pick up on some of these themes later. I mean, just a, a, yeah. I'll ask a quick mm -hmm. question then we'll, mm -hmm. we'll, move, we'll move down the row here. But I mean, um, you know, Europe is rather distracted internally as, as I think you suggested, mm -hmm. but a big part of that distraction is due to the stimulus of refugees mm -hmm. and of the threats uh, not just from refugees, but of the, of the terrorist threats from ISIS that certainly are inspired by um, the disorder in the Middle East. So aren't, you know, are they looking for Asian help with that? I mean, I don't think the Europeans even think that they, they, can, they can not focus on the Middle East. And in that sense, certainly they're, they're going to work with the United States, but are, are they also looking in any ways to Asia? And I saw that um, uh, Xi Jinping came on, online recently and said uh, he's in favor of a two-state solution. <laughs> after the um, uh, rolling trends of uh, US statements on this question. We just had King Salman take a very significant uh, tour across Asia. Uh, and I think 2 thirds of Middle East, Middle East oil goes to, to Asia. So I mean, uh, these trends seem to me, if, if, you, could project, if you could project forward even uh, two to five years, I see this as growing. Uh, well, I think the Europeans have also tried, they've done two maybe in a way, your question presumes that maybe the Asian, the Europeans can say, well, maybe the Asians can do more, can contribute more to bringing stability to this region, and that we should not be, we should not react negatively to a rise of Indian and Chinese influence in the Middle East. Maybe that, in fact, is a positive thing. That's it's worth saying. But I do think that Europeans, because of the proximity to the Arab world, because of the pre-existing um, migrant population that is now expanding dramatically, there's a very different dynamic to how European countries think about their interaction with the mm -hmm. Arab world. The Asians still have the luxury of being far away and not, uh, and they might have their own domestic Muslim populations, which is certainly true in India and China, but they don't have the same, there's, there's not that much convergence of 
um, interest in terms of the acute policy dilemmas that the, uh, the Europeans face. So I see the Europeans trying to solve this problem, their problems, their domestic concerns of the spillover of the Middle East into their own domestic situations. I think they see that as a very local problem. I don't think they see that as a, as a problem that countries 10,000 miles away can help them solve. Mm -hmm. um, but, and as the other point I was going to make is that the Europeans, ironic, paradoxically perhaps, have also stepped up to trying to play a stronger security role in, in the region. We have both the French and the Brits expanding their military cooperation in the region, reopening bases that we hadn't seen there for 30, 40 years. <coughs> so they're trying to play it both ways. Mm -hmm. <coughs> I mean, they're trying to both be present in the Middle East and be seen as reliable, trusted uh, partners for security assistance, et cetera, for counterterrorism cooperation, and they're focused on, their, uh, on, on the problem that exists within their own borders. I see. Mm -hmm. And not to mention China also has some new bases uh, in Djibouti, which I consider the Middle East, but we'll yeah, add so, that but that's that. a, a good and important thing to say, <laughs> that we've seen China's economic interest in the Middle East, and we are just at the very beginning of seeing them uh, expand to having some kind of a security presence. And this began with their willingness to cooperate in the naval operations, uh, the counter-Somali pirate operations and yep. counter-terrorism. So we've seen a creeping uh, Chinese and Indian willingness mm -hmm. to expand their naval uh, cooperation under UN auspices uh, further west. Yep. Thank you. Um, Dr. Godeman, we'd love to hear from you now on these questions. Thanks. Uh, Russia and China, uh, that's a big agenda that you gave me. <laughs> and I would break it down into three separate questions. Uh, one is, to what extent is there commonality or not? The second question, does that mean convergence, some strategic convergence or not? And three, what are the responses from, shall we say, European Asians rather than Americans? I would like to preface that by saying, by the way, that Europe is not the only place where domestic politics uh, sort of intrude on the agenda. If you count the major democracies and agree to to include South Korea uh, within the major democracies. I would say only Japan and India currently uh, have a fairly uh, stable and ongoing and, and, and certain path. Uh, I say that because Chinese leaders, now every time they meet anybody, just start with the word uncertainty and end with the word stability. Uncertainty is the others, but mainly the US. Stability is mainly them. And it's a, it's a, it's a major selling point right now uh, in their public diplomacy. Uh, Russia uh, and China, uh, the common point, of course, is rejection, I wouldn't say of the existing international order and norms, but the, the kind of efforts to expand it uh, after 1989. Uh, I would put the, the, the break somewhere at that date. Humanitarian intervention, for example, and what it led to uh, for Russia, Serbia uh, remains the always quoted example uh, for China. Uh, it's Libya uh, and what they see as a broken promise not to, uh, uh, not to proceed to regime change uh, under the mandate that, that had been given them. Uh, and it expands into a lot of other uh, areas where they both uh, may like to say no uh, or to make reservations. They are not alone. In some cases, they can bring along a number of emerging uh, countries which are also prickly about sovereignty or just don't want to, 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 to give in easily to these new norms or have interests 
which they see better served by staying on the side. So I don't want to, 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 to make it too big, but it's a, it's, it, it, I, I think it's a common thread. Uh, the actual use that they make uh, of their capacities, for example, within the UN has some commonality. As you know, they have common vetoes. The last one was on uh, humanitarian intervention precisely uh, into Aleppo. Uh, if you look at it, it doesn't spread to many topics. Uh, and for example, China will not use its veto uh, power on, on, on Ukraine, uh, to take that uh, example. Uh, uh, so there is not common sh complete common sharing. The second trait, and that's not a commonality, is that Russia is an impoverished power, but it's a hard power, uh, and it uses hard power, and it makes decisions effectively, and it's not afraid of shedding blood, and it's not afraid of crossing red lines. It's essentially uh, upended uh, the European order after 1945 uh, in Crimea and Ukraine, and we forget very quickly that there were thousands of people who have died uh, in Donbass. Uh, I'm not going to go on. Uh, about that, but when you compare China's cautious towing of the red line, uh, eroding of its partners' resistance, but avoiding uh, any kind of frontal uh, attack, and in fact being extremely skillful also at avoiding incidents that might backfire. We keep, I keep reading colleagues who talk about the difficult chain of control uh, inside Chinese organizations, and particularly in the Army and in the PLA Navy, uh, but I find it remarkably controlled if you, if, if you look at how little actual dangerous incidents uh, have happened, whether with Japan or the US or even with others. Uh, and when there is a risk, they can move back as they did for a very short time over the Scarborough show. So it's a completely different attitude uh, and, and in, 20, in 2012. Uh, 2012 so it's a completely different attitude. And when I talked to the Chinese, I mean, they will always spit out very openly and very quickly the contempt they have for Russia as a society, as an economy, as a culture, uh, and the glee probably uh, that exists among the older generation at superseding the former master. But I think they open their eyes widely at Putin's capacity uh, to reshape issues, uh, as he had, for example, in the Near East uh, uh, very, very recently. They do act together, the vetoes again on this, and I turn to you for confirmation for something else. When, for example, there is a Navy use uh, where the Chinese are there, as there was for the chemical, uh, the, the, the chemical disarming uh, of Syria, they don't cooperate with Russians on the ground. They remain separate, which is important. Uh, and so I think uh, it's, it's, I, I, I often compare it to the uh, famous uh, Hitchcock film where two strangers exchange their crime on a train. It doesn't mean they share the crime. They just exchange favors, but they don't necessarily uh, converge uh, as much as we think. Russia is the short-term threat, particularly to uh, Eastern Europeans, and therefore should be a threat to EU as a whole, although that's not as clear as it is in, uh, on, the, on the political front. Uh, but China is obviously uh, the longer-term threat because it has a very different uh, approach because it picks and chooses among norms but does accept uh, a number of aspects of integration, has, begin, has become <coughs> the greatest promoter of globalization, 
uh, for example, much more so than our societies, which now experience a backlash against uh, some of it. Uh, so that's a, 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 a very big uh, difference. And I'm going to come quickly to the third point, which is really, I think, the important policy stuff. Uh, we have a lot of difficulty among Europeans and Asians in agreeing, except via the United States indirectly, uh, and merely because in Europe, uh, the US has so far, so far, supported Europe uh, in defense terms, and therefore, uh, even when it has decided not to use uh, military means, for example, on Crimea and Ukraine, mm. uh, has reinforced the resolve for sanctions. And I view the European process on sanctions uh, uh, on Russia so far as a political success, not necessarily a strategic success, because if I had a more general word on sanctions, it seems that more often than not, uh, they strengthen resolve and are superseded by the will of others, but in political terms for us. Uh, but we have no, a number of us have absolutely no beef over issues uh, in Northeast Asia. You'd find half of the Europeans saying this is the US preserve, the US province. They own it, let them solve it. And that's a recurring trend, even more today, of course, with the present uncertainty in, in the administration. That's not the whole of Europe, but it's a trend. Uh, enough that you can see that the statements at the EU level uh, remain muted and sometimes uh, a bit underwhelming, as was the case of recently last July on the South China Sea uh, issue. Uh, by contrast, the Japanese and the East Asia and, and the Koreans who rely much more directly uh, on, the, on the United States for their security vis-a-vis -vis North Korea or China, I should say they toe the line of the United States. So we all know the Japanese and the Koreans very much dislike the sanctions on Russia, which have disrupted their own attempt at avoiding to be trapped in front of China, at, 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 at enlisting uh, Russia, at least indirectly, as a partner uh, that would ease their situation, either facing North Korea or facing China uh, more generally. And they couldn't do it because of the sanctions process. But nonetheless, they have towed it. Uh, this is a part where I would, uh, I, would, I would say the Japanese, for example, have been actually quite active in Eastern Europe and on Ukraine. As usual, it's money, uh, it's support. Uh, I mean, clearly, it's not, uh, it's not what the Japanese don't do uh, generally, but it's real. Uh, where we can't uh, completely, where, where we can completely uh, cooperate is unfortunately uh, now in the gaps uh, left open by the new administration in the US. So on trade, for example, on all those issues that require multilateral stance, it's <coughs> clear that Europeans and Japanese and Koreans are looking to each other for mutual support. And you know, what do you do when the main center of decisions in that aspect is, shall we say, on strike or undecided, uh, uncertain, as the Chinese would say? That's an, uh, something that is that is going up. Uh, up to now, I've always considered that the Japanese never moved for the geopolitical purposes that they announced in terms of, term, in terms of trade or on other issues. Uh, but this may have changed uh, because of the need, the absolute need to go ahead uh, after the uh, crushing of, of TPP. So that's one issue where there is progress. On European involvement uh, in Asia, uh, it's not completely either or. Either or. Uh, there's been more realism 
Look at the trade front, for example, we are now much more realist. Uh, we deny market economy status to China and we're building trade defense instruments. And we thought there would be retaliation, but because of the election here, there was no retaliation from China because China suddenly had other problems uh, to, to, to deal with. And, and therefore, the, uh, the, the, the brave 2016 uh, European policy just passed, uh, at least for the time being. Uh, on, on military and strategic issues, yes, there is always the debate in Europe between quasi-neutralism, mercantilism, or trade first, let the US solve it. But there are many others, and the number is increasing, uh, who understand the danger, the common danger, on freedom of navigation, who understand uh, the risks uh, generally that apply also to Europe. So I would say a number of countries are more active. Uh, that's particularly the French and the British, and we don't know what status the British, uh, uh, how will they, man how that will be managed uh, in the future. But right now it's going, it's going uh, rather well. Germany <coughs> often described particularly in this town these days, as the ultimate mercantilist power. Uh, I see it as having shifted on this under Mrs. Merkel uh, completely from the Kohl uh, era, Schroeder uh, era, uh, and being much tougher and displeasing, uh, uh, for example, China on many issues, uh, even though China uh, has a need to keep the economic relationship uh, going with Germany, so it goes easier on Germany than it does on other uh, European countries when they displease Beijing. Uh, but I think that's a major difference uh, with the past. Uh, to go beyond that, <coughs> I think, is frankly almost impossible. Uh, there would be a need in Europe, and there are now commitments to increasing the defense posture and defense budgets. That's a long haul project, and it's not going to go uh, you know, it's not going to double the, 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 the American predominance uh, within defense is huge. And even though we have stopped disarming and started uh, rearming, it's going to be a slow trend. Uh, the, uh, I forgot to mention the, China, the huge Chinese uh, influence into Europe. That's a touchy mm -hmm. subject because when you, I mean, except in this town where Mr. Tsui Kai is probably one of China's most competent ambassadors, I would say generally that Russian ambassadors, for example, in European cities, and what, what is around them, uh, which extends pretty far into society, has much more deep influence uh, than China does. China is all on the surface, or is always open deal. We have money, do you want a deal? Uh, financial influence, uh, which is a pretty convincing argument to some, uh, to some countries, but it doesn't really extend beyond that. It's a major difference with the Russians, perhaps because the Russians have always been part of European history, because they know our culture, uh, because there are common points in politics. So you will find political parties in a number of Eastern European countries, and probably in Southern Europe, and probably in France, uh, divided uh, over these issues, uh, as China doesn't raise any patience uh, it raises financial interest again, or uh, hostility about human rights issues or stuff like that. Uh, but it's not as much part uh, of the uh, political debate. So that's a difference. But to go beyond uh, would mean uh, 
for us uh, to be able to build much more our integrated uh, defense and diplomatic posture. I think that is possible so long as the U.S. maintains a fairly coherent and stable course because it gives us the possibility on the side to build up this. If the U.S. itself retreats uh, for one reason or another, uh, that becomes much more different, much more difficult, and we do have the risk in that case of a major political or diplomatic crisis. So back to the U.S. for uh, some indication of will happen, what will happen in the next four years. Well, thank you very much. You really covered a lot of lot of grounds. <laughs> I, I want to sort of hit a big uh, a big picture question for you um, that you raised in, both in the beginning and the end of your remarks, and that is, you know, China stepping into this perceived vacuum, uh, this this leadership role on globalization. Uh, President Xi, Xi um, his, his intervention or his uh, remarks at Davos, I think, were the uh, alarm bells on this question. Um, but I mean, when you break it down, I'm not quite convinced. And I wonder, I, I wanted your view on whether the Europeans are convinced. I mean, the different aspects of globalization, I, I think I get it on trade, kind of get it on climate change. But I mean, when it comes to values, to um, uh, not using coercive trade instruments against countries for political purposes. I'm not quite, I'm not quite there, but I wonder if the Europeans are, uh, just, or is this sort of just a charm offensive that doesn't have practical policy implications? Look, there are media frenzies, and, and, and I must say that Xi Jinping pulled a masterful coup uh, <laughs> with the speech that everybody wanted to, to hear, and he gave it. Uh, he's for multilateralism, he's for uh, complete uh, global disarm nuclear disarmament. Uh, he's for international rule of law. Who can say no to those things? They're, they're fantastic. Uh, and so you've had a kind of trendy uh, view. And of course, you know, what we see in the US, what's come, if you remember that this came a week or two after some sweets and NATO and Europe, uh, that, that, doesn't, that of course doesn't help a lot. Uh, but beyond that, uh, I think that we're back to business as usual, which is how much China is ready to deal uh, on specific issues of interest uh, to Europe. How much is it disappointing, including in interest terms, for example, to Eastern European partners. There's been a lot of disruption there, uh, and, the, and, and, and China is not necessarily completely coherent. Part of it is not its fault, for example, when it has all these big OBOR projects and uh, both Syria-Iraq conflict and Ukraine-Crimea uh, conflict geographically block part of the thing. It means that they shift their attention from Southeast, from, uh, uh, southeast countries in, in the EU to Northeast countries for purely logistical and geographical reasons. But then they uh, uh, take, a country, like, uh, take a, country, a country like Hungary, and uh, even with its government, is made to understand that the interest was not way beyond a direct practical implication. Uh, so uh, I, don't, I don't, I mean, I think that has come, by the way, in a, in a recent Merkel speech uh, in Germany, for example, uh, to ask China uh, where are the deeds behind the words uh, on this. Uh, I think that uh, the European uh, Trade Commissioner, Ms. Mrs. Malmstrom, has asked uh, on the record the Chinese uh, to say, well, since you've 
in this speech uh, talked about reciprocity and further opening, where is the beef? Uh, that's, I think, is the, is the answer. Uh, I would not compare European policies today on these issues to the situation 10 years ago. 10 years ago, there was a dream, there was an illusion uh, also linked to the past 89 uh, situation. That dream is over. And we may have a, a, a Europe that has difficulty in coordinating, that has you know, the occasional uh, stumbling block, uh, as happened on the resolution of the South China Sea last July again. Uh, but we don't have a, 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 a closed eyes Europe on these issues. I think that, that is out of the question. Great. Uh, I like the, the quote for, for, for Merkel, where's the beef? Be, it was uh, not a. It was an American interpretation no, of the way she. <laughs> hopefully, we have that on our on our Twitter account, which is which is uh, capturing this event. Um, <laughs> Professor, we'd love to hear now from from your perspective on these on these challenges and the potential for Atlantic Atlantic Pacific cooperation. Please. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, it uh, really is a great pleasure for me to be here and. Uh, so therefore, I very much appreciate the Atlantic Council, especially Bob Manning, for giving me such a good opportunity. Well, uh, let me try uh, to say a few words on the, uh, my perspective on the, this issue, so possible cooperation between the Atlantic and the Pacific to deal with North Korea, well, especially North Korea and the nuclear and the missile issues. I think it's a not easy task. Uh, I mean, uh, even in a Asian side, the Pacific side. Now we are dealing with these issues, especially by the, uh, our trilateral three parties effort, US, South Korea, and Japan. Well, and uh, well, so far, so we, we could have some good results. Uh, but uh, well, still the problem is among the three, cooperation, uh, three parties cooperation, always the problem with the uh, bilateral well, uh, ties within the Japan and the South Korea. Well, it's a quite hard to have the same security cooperation well, between the Japan and the South Korea. So uh, right now, as you may know, right now still we have uh, some deep CLS uh, historical issues, such as the comfort women issues, and it means that uh, it's a very much hard to overcome the uh, but these issues, as long as the such a historical issues will continue, so it's a almost impossible to create very concrete, uh, very meaningful uh, security cooperation between the two countries, Japan and South Korea. So therefore, under the such circumstances, I think the uh, well, European involvement in these issues, I mean, uh, to prevent North Korea uh, from a further the development of the nuclear and the missile capability, and uh, well, eventually, the, if we can lead uh, North Korea to abandon the all of the nuclear and also the missiles capability, well, it's a quite good. And uh, I need, uh, I think that we need, uh, well, uh, European, well, uh, involvement on, on the issues, especially the, if from my Japanese perspectives. Now, I now I think that we like to elaborate that uh, our current um, good security and cooperation uh, with uh, some uh, European countries, uh, especially now between Japan and the UK. Uh, we already have started some uh, two plus two uh, dialogue and very uh, effective one. 
the best of the suggestion. Now uh, we hope that, uh, to uh, expand, uh, enhance that our cooperation, the security cooperation. So uh, in the future, especially I think that now, the uh, good good uh, idea that for us is that now the UK has some idea to build up the new uh, uh, aircraft carrier. And uh, also they have some idea to dispatch one of them to the Pacific uh, area. So, and, well, well, we, Japan, are very much welcomed. It's such a new initiative by the United Kingdom so some to think about to, to uh, outreach their, their uh, security commitment to the Pacific area. And uh, oh, so therefore, we, uh, if uh, uh, actually the UK uh, uh, will be able to do uh, such a thing, so we, Japan, are very much uh, pleased to uh, provide their, well, uh, some good port facility for, for them, the, uh, such as the uh, uh, Yokosuka, the port is also is great. Uh, available for uh, having the uh, well, uh, British uh, aircraft carrier to, to, to come to Japan or to the, the legion of the, the Pacific. Of course, if the uh, uh, UK will decide to do, well, it's uh, quite good for, uh, I mean, uh, well, uh, to showing up that their presence in the Pacific means that the two uh, will maybe to check uh, the, some Chinese uh, well neighbor activity but uh, also I think that the uh, such a UK is uh, some uh, commitment to the uh, the Pacific uh, security or the some presence uh, showing up to the presence to the Pacific side is uh, quite useful for uh, uh, the, the North Korea to uh, uh, to make some good warning that uh, well we you know so outside of the uh, uh, not only at the US, South Korea, Japan, there's some triangle where the well, also the uh, well, with Japan, the UK, and the US, and the well, to organize uh, the some new trilateral cooperation with the trilateral some presence in the uh, Pacific area, the presence of the our neighbor forces to well, uh, well to, to, to the North Korea is well, kind of uh, I I think the uh, good the means for. Uh, well, to try to uh, uh, remove uh, uh, North Korea, so nuclear and uh, 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 the, the missile some the capability. And also, uh, the, as an area of the uh, possible cooperation in the future, well, maybe uh, the cyber uh, well, uh, is a quite uh, important, especially now European countries are very much interested, <coughs> very much developing the, the, their a preparation for uh, such a cyber attack or the cyber warfare. And uh, well, uh, we in the uh, Pacific side in Japan, especially the thinking about the North Korean the threats, so now we cannot rule out, well, we cannot ignore the uh, North Korean, well, some cyber uh, capability in the future, uh, some uh, possibility of the, the, the North Korean world. Uh, use such a cyber to, to attack to to as a region or neighbors. So therefore, uh, well, again, have to deal with these uh, North Korean cyber some uh, activity. I think that some cooperation, 
within the Pacific and the uh, Atlantic is uh, quite useful. So therefore, uh, well, uh, still, uh, uh, I mean, in general, oh, uh, we're making uh, some good, uh, very concrete uh, well, the cooperation uh, well, to deal with North Korea is a bit in the uh, to uh, Pacific and uh, uh, well, the Atlantic is a not so easy task. But, well, I, I think that we need to uh, think about much more seriously and to develop the cooperation is uh, quite, well, good. So, and uh, I, I stop here, so five minutes. Sure, thank you. And you, you raised some very interesting prospects at a time mm -hmm. when um, I know there's an active policy review on North Korea here yeah, exactly. in the U.S. I mean, do, do you think that um, the Trump administration and then working with Japan and, um, and, the, and Korea have an opportunity to, to, to strengthen and in many ways broaden an approach to, to North Korea? I, I like how you're thinking about a threat that doesn't get a lot of attention in this kind of discussion, cyber, mm -hmm. but also I would think in terms of even a diplomatic approach to North Korea, if that's still on the table, but also even, um, you know, I cannot imagine an outcome of a policy review that does not include significant additional military, mm -hmm. U.S. military enhancements in the region, and boy, would that look much better if it included the U.K. and potentially other European oh, yes, powers. Right. What do you think about that? Well, uh, I think the... Uh, at least now, I think that for the time being, that we have to pay much more attention on the some one side of the well, all of the options. I mean that well, military options. It's quite good. I mean, showing up the such some consideration by the United States or the some other well allies of the countries to think about such a military option. There's a well, quite good warning to, to the North Korea because if we uh, look at the North Korean um, news or the, some responses right now, well, they are very much sensitively to uh, respond or to uh, the uh, such a, you know, so-called preemptive attack by the U.S. or some using the some military options or something. So therefore, in this sense, I think at least for the time being, this is quite useful. Because, well, we're very soon that are in next month, so the Xi Jinping will come to this town, and, or not this town, to, to this country and uh, to have some meeting with, with uh, uh, well, President Trump. And uh, I think this is the one that, uh, uh, well, uh, occasion uh, well, China will seriously, uh, strongly to to show up that their negative stance on the using a such a military option. So, so therefore, uh, well, uh, uh, after the the CGPs or well, after the meeting with the CGPs, I think the uh, such as some possibility of the using the military option will very much decrease. And also in the uh, uh, next, next month in the May, early May, and from the 10th May, uh, South Korea, in South Korea, the new government will start. Yeah. So uh, if new government will start, surely I believe that more than 100 persons, so uh, South Korean government was strongly opposed to the, the US government to, to use uh, such a military options. It's uh, quite obvious. At the moment, we don't have any CLS not serious, uh, well, not many serious comments from the South Korea mean that now, you know, <laughs> dysfunction. I mean, uh, no fun function with the government at all uh, in, in the South Korea right now. But uh, if the new government will start such a thing, so, uh, 
Well, uh, surely uh, South Korea will oppose. Mean that again, that after that, so military option, using the military option will be, uh, I think, that almost impossible, I think. So, but until at the time, so at least we should show up to our very strong stance or the will to the uh, North Korea. Then uh, after that thing, I think that we need to seriously consider the other side of the options, I mean that uh, diplomatic some effort again that we have to go back to think about such options. Thanks very much. Uh, Ambassador Gallucci, I know you have some direct experience on this question, but also the broader <coughs> questions of global nuclear security. And thanks, thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Barry. Uh, it, it occurred to me that both Professor Zumi and I have relatively specific, hard focused topics to talk about, uh, ways in which the Atlantic and the Pacific might cooperate. I and mean, my other two colleagues, Francois and, and, and Ellen, were dealing with more conceptual, I'd say, ethereal uh, issues. Uh, and uh, for me, that's appropriate. Uh, which is to say that the nuclear security issue and the way Barry introduced it by observing that there were four summits on nuclear security that uh, President Obama very much wanted to proceed with. They were two in Washington, one in Seoul and, and one in uh, uh, The Hague, uh, addressed an issue that uh, truly transcends Atlantic and Pacific and, and uh, it is not the only issue that emerges from it, but the profile of this issue is the phrase nuclear terrorism. And uh, usually when an American is running for office, presidency, and he's asked what's the greatest threat to the national security, perhaps international security, but we don't usually think that way, uh, the answer is nuclear terrorism. That's, that just... If you do everything right, but you get that wrong, and you're the American president, nobody says, good job, Brownie. Uh, uh, you know, everybody's pretty upset at you for having lost an American city. So that, that was behind, I think, the, the uh, nuclear security summits. And, be, and behind that still was a question of, well, how do you change nuclear terrorism um, uh, how would it change from being a very high consequence phenomenon but low probability phenomenon? Uh, how would it change from a very high consequence to a higher probability phenomenon? How could we prevent that change from taking place? And that thinking leads most analysts of um, nuclear terrorism to say, to use the Americanism, the long pole in the tent for nuclear terrorism is fissile material. I mean, there's a lot of other things you have to bring together to, 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 for a terrorist entity to, to cause a nuclear weapon to go off in an American city. But the toughest part, we all seem to agree, is getting the fissile material. And there's essentially, this is not in a fine-tuned way, absolutely true, but essentially, we can think of it that way. There are only two kinds of material, highly enriched uranium, enriched in the isotope uranium-235, and plutonium. And if you can keep those two things controlled and away from terrorists, then they can't make a nuclear weapon, no matter what else they got. 
Okay. The summits were wonderful. I mean, anybody who's concerned about this issue as I have, how to like the summits, uh, put focus, uh, world attention. But the focus at the summits was um, 80 to 90% on one of those two materials, highly enriched uranium, and a lot less focus on plutonium, which troubled me. Now, I now a little asterisk here. I, I heard just yesterday that one of my colleagues said to another of my colleagues that I could be a good analyst on this issue if I wasn't on a plutonium jihad. <laughs> now, I, I think that's wrong because that's my, not my religious tradition. I prefer plutonium crusade uh, <laughs> being more accurate. So, I, and I fess up to that right away. I, I am very much concerned about plutonium. And, and plutonium is different than uh, highly enriched uranium because of the nature, because of physics, you can't blend plutonium and solve the problem. You can solve the problem with highly enriched uranium by blending it with low enriched uranium and getting more low enriched uranium. But you can't do that. You can't, plutonium can't be put together with something and become non-fissile, non-weapons usable. So, and plus, Uranium's got a, got a value, a price tag associated with it. People want it because they can use it to, to right? Plutonium, actually, people don't want. And there's not a positive, oh, I'll buy your plutonium. I really want it. That doesn't, doesn't happen. You, you might be able to get rid of it and burn it up and say it has fuel value. But there's a reason why people aren't leaping to get somebody else's plutonium. So for me, as I look at the world and this particular issue, the question is, what might happen to change the situation so that plutonium or highly enriched uranium became more readily available to terrorists? And therefore, the problem became not one of high consequence, low probability, but high consequence and much higher probability. There's one thing that leaps to mind and it involves cooperation between the Atlantic and the Pacific. And that is preventing the use of plutonium as a fuel in the nuclear fuel cycle. Once you say, OK, I want to fuel my reactors with plutonium, and I mean the current generation of reactors. I'm not talking about either fourth generation, if you're in the biz, or I'm, and I'm not talking about the old LMFVRs, the old breeder reactors. I'm talking about the, the reactors that are all around the world. Reactors that make up like 99% of the energy that's produced by nuclear energy are th what are called thermal reactors. And most of them are light water moderated reactors. Right? So if you took America's almost 100 operating reactors right now, they're all light water reactors. Right? And, and, and if you go around the world, that's almost always true. So the question is, can we keep running them with uranium, low enriched uranium, or are we going to try to use plutonium, extract plutonium from spent fuel, recycle it in these reactors, and have plutonium going all over the place where we have reactors? And where do we have reactors? Near cities. So if you have it in your mind now, plutonium is in a few locations, and that's true. It's in a few locations in a few countries. Change that to the plutonium in the countries that decide to use plutonium fuel so that it's circulating all over the country. And remember, we're talking tons of plutonium, where the amount of material, you've seen this done before, that was used, plutonium that was used in the Nagasaki bomb, bomb would fit in this cup. 
literally fit in this cup. And I'm talking about tons of this material moving around each year. So how does this translate to Atlantic Pacific? Right now, Japan has roughly 42.1 <laughs> tons, owns 42.1 tons of plutonium that it has extracted from its spent, peacefully produced fuel. And it's had a reprocessing plant and pulled this material out, 41.1 tons, tons, thousands of 40,000 kilograms, where five kilograms makes the bomb. It owns this, but only 20% of this material is in Japan. 80% of those tons are in Europe. They're in, they're in the UK and France. And the deal under which, you might wonder, how did that happen? Well, uh, the, Jap the, this, the French and the British were in the reprocessing business. And they said, y'all send us your spent fuel. We'll reprocess it, separate the plutonium. We'll ship the waste back. And eventually, we'll ship the plutonium back. Well, Japan's due to get that plutonium back, 80% of the 40 tons back from the British and the French. Now, who thinks that's a good idea? Well, not actually very many people. As it turns out, the Chinese aren't amused by this. South Koreans aren't too thrilled either because they look at Japan and they look at Japan creating what one analyst has called a hedge, a plutonium overhang, which would allow them to move quickly to become a nuclear weapons state. And we don't have any doubt about how quick that would be. Japan builds Hondas. This would not take them very long. Right? So the, the question is, what is going to happen? Is all this material going to go to Japan? And by the way, the Japanese have made a firm commitment. It's decades old to always have a plan of what to do with any plutonium so they don't end up with an overhang. The problem is, they, they, they several problems, but not, a non-small one, a non-trivial one, was Fukushima. You know, when all the reactors went offline, uh, and, all, and they're coming back very slowly, even if they wanted to recycle some of this plutonium in those reactors, there's only going to be a couple to three that might actually be able to take them. And they don't have a fast breeder anymore because they shut it down wisely. So what's going to happen with all that plutonium in Japan? To the extent that they do recycle it, you have the nuclear terrorism problem in Japan because the material is all over the place. You also have an attractive nuisance from our perspective as we look at, ours being American in this case, we look at South Korean desires to reprocess also. Not particularly technically driven, but politically driven because Japan can reprocess US origin material. Why can't we in South Korea? Well, there are historical reasons for that, which we can go into. But the point here is there is a problem, and there, it, there really is a problem, and there is a role for Europe to play, particularly France and Britain, in terms of the management of that material. And we can talk about ways of doing this, but it's enough for the panel right now to say they have a clear role in this, because they've got 80% of the material over there. 
Second part of this problem is a little plan, even contract, between um, France and China because France proposes to build for the Chinese a reprocessing plant about the same size as Rikasho, the Japanese plant. That would be 800 tons of spent fuel going through each year in China. What's wrong with that? Well, you could be a security analyst and worry about this being another source of plutonium for Chinese nuclear weapons. I don't care particularly about that issue, but I, I have some colleagues who do. I care about the same thing I care about for Japan, and that is that if this is built, China will recycle that plutonium around to its light water reactors, and it has the fastest growing nuclear program in the world right now. And I, I think it should have the fastest growing <laughs> nuclear program in the world. I'm not opposed to nuclear energy. I'm opposed to plutonium fuel. Remember plutonium crusade, Bob? That's I think this. Well, I don't want that plutonium going around to the reactors all through China for nuclear security reasons. Again, another attractive nuisance for the South Koreans, because that would be a third country in Northeast Asia with a lot of plutonium moving around to its cities. So <coughs> how do we solve this problem? Each piece of this problem has, a, has a, an Asian piece and an Atlantic piece. And if we put these together and we see this as a problem, we might be able to even, even overcome commercial interests that obviously exist here. Um, I think I'm going to stop there. Well, thanks very much, uh, Ambassador. That was a very rich and specific agenda for us. I want to shortly turn to questions from the audience on any of these issues. But first, wanted to ask the rest of the panel if, if any of you had reactions to other uh, elements of this conversation that have come after your initial uh, intervention. And so, Ellen? Bob, could you just clarify? I thought the facility in France is actually sort of a success story of international cooperation, that the French stepped up to the plate to provide a facility <coughs> that would be able to be a safe and secure uh, facility for other countries. So or isn't there some level of international supervision and standards at that, at that facility? Yeah. Um, this is, so first, I uh, am not now, nor have I ever been hugely concerned about um, the security at La Hague mm. and material disappearing from La, from La Hague. La Hague is a reprocessing plant in, in, in France that's, that's of interest here. They have more than one. Um, I, I don't, I, what, what the French offered is what the British offered, which is, it was called reprocessing services, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And in countries that took advantage of the reprocessing services, it was sold domestically, as it was in Japan, as a way to manage radioactive waste, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what you have to understand about this is if you don't reprocess spent fuel, it is simply spent fuel. It is contained in fuel rods. Mm -hmm. We have the largest fleet of reactors in the world, and we do not reprocess spent fuel. We store it. Some would say horribly, but actually not. We store it in ponds until it cools, and then we put it in, in cement mm -hmm. monoliths, right? Until Yucca Mountain or some other place becomes available. Cement works quite well for hundreds of years. So I would say 
those who have said, oh, we're going to ship this stuff to Japan, excuse me, to, to France and Britain and solve radioactive waste, well, there was, it was a very, it was a political solution because the stuff disappeared. Mm. It wasn't in the city anymore. Mm -hmm. it, it was shipped. The ship that got put on ships and sent over there. Okay, eventually, the waste that it separated, there are three streams in a reprocessing plant. One is residually enriched uranium, another is plutonium, another is radioactive waste. That waste gets shipped back to the, to the country that sent it. So the waste comes back to Japan, and Japan still has to worry about that waste. It, the, the plutonium, though, is also going to come back unless some other arrangement is made. Yes. Now, I, don't, I, I have, have never, <laughs> I don't have a problem with the idea that the, the material has been shipped to France and Britain because that's done. I would have preferred no reprocessing happen and no separation of plutonium, and the plutonium remain in spent fuel where it is, can't be handled directly. There's no nuclear security issue. There is a radioactive waste management issue for sure, but there's not a nuclear security issue. Okay, So that's how I'd respond. On, on the same issue because it's so concrete as opposed, as you said, to our large stuff. Uh, 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 not in my backyard. How does Japan deal with that in terms of reprocessing? I mean, you come out and okay, China has Xinjiang mm -hmm. and other areas. Even for Europeans, I think the, 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 the one attempt by the French to have a new uh, underground center in eastern France is meeting with huge local resistance. So that reprocessing sounds as the most logical option. So I'm wondering yeah. whether you're hitting at plutonium, you're hitting at the reprocessing uh, uh, solution, but what you're really saying is no more nuclear plants, hmm. uh, I, if one goes to the logical conclusion. For me, that would be a tragedy of major magnitude. In other words, I am an advocate of nuclear energy because I am concerned about climate change. And I see no way of getting to the point where renewables can provide baseload of electricity, which is probably three decades or more away, other than to bridge with nuclear energy. So uh, nuclear energy, to me, is essential to manage the climate change problem. Mm -hmm. So if you, let me start with, if you are correct, then I am deeply depressed by the insight. Mm -hmm. What I would hope is since you are since this is a political issue, NIMBY, not not, not in my backyard, NIMBY isn't a technical issue. No, NIMBY is a political issue. So what I would like, of course, is an education campaign that mm -hmm. says that a nuclear energy can be good and safe. I mean, we have killed nobody that we know of with nuclear energy in the United States, and we've been running plants for 60 years. Right? And, and generally, it has a safety record that exceeds the coal industry and the oil industry, et cetera. So it can be safe. What about the waste? Well, the, the waste can be managed, and it doesn't need to be reprocessed. There's even an argument that when you, re and it's not a bad argument, that when you reprocess spent fuel, the, if you add the high-level waste with the low-level waste, you end up with more volume of waste to manage than if you left it as spent fuel. And there was also an argument for a long time that you needed to reprocess in order to get plutonium for your fast breeder reactor. But if you ran around the world now, you would only find a few, like one or two operating fast reactors after 50 years of trying to make them operate. So that's not an argument. 
And I, so I, I, what I'm, I'm trying to say is I would stipulate, as lawyers like to say, that if you don't solve the political problem uh, of, of the backyard, of being able to accept nuclear energy and the fact that there's going to have to be waste someplace stored, then you may in fact kill nuclear energy. And that would be, in my view, a tragedy. We've, we have a question from Twitter on a specific issue. And, and just so the panelists are clear on this overall effort, we, we like the big mix with the specific. I mean, the, the broader context that all of you have addressed very effectively, as well as the specific issues and proposals and um, uh, initiatives that many of you have discussed as well. Uh, so the specific question from Twitter from Lin Fang, who is at Voice of America Mandarin Service, is how do the panelists see the prospect of US-China cooperation on, on North Korea? A very 2017 issue, but a very important issue as well. And that's open for any of the panelists. <laughs> I, I'd like to take a shot at Please, that, yeah. but I also, of course, want to hear from Professor Zumi. I'd start with uh, the proposition that on North Korea, US and Chinese interests really do overlap. Mm -hmm. But they are not, I repeat, not congruent. So in the prioritization of things we want, we want to stop a nuclear weapons program, stop a ballistic missile program very, very much. We'd like to avoid war, we'd, all, that, all that happening. And we have human rights concerns, a lot of, so we have a list of objectives. The Chinese share a lot of those objectives. I mean, they certainly. They, they certainly do want to avoid a war. Mm -hmm. And they want to avoid nuclear weapons, actually, a big program in, in, in North Korea, and extended range ballistic missiles. I mean, this is called, the process, right now, the m missiles have cost them the THAAD radars, <laughs> as they see it. They know that when they complain to the United States and the South Koreans that this is a measure that we're pursuing in order to deal with their client state's action. Right? So they, they get that. And a war would bring the worst nightmare. And I don't mean the refugee flows. I mean the presence of American military and naval assets in Northeast Asia, the last thing the Chinese want. But more than anything, the Chinese want to avoid the collapse of the North Korean regime. And that has them operate as a thermostat with respect to the impact of sanctions on that regime. They will moderate it. And they will undercut sanctions that would be destructive to that regime. And they'll do that because the collapse of that regime and a unified Korea, which would be in their minds, certainly potentially, a South Korean regime allied with the United States of America, puts their competitive in the Asian Pacific region in a geostrategic way on their doorstep, contiguous to them. So they are going to limit their cooperation with sanctions and the extent to which they'll allow sanctions to impact. But in the meantime, they will work with us to try to moderate North Korean behavior because the most aggressive character of that behavior does not serve their interests. That's how I put it. Um, we had a question from Abe Denmark on this very issue. Just a question. Okay. touched on it a little bit in your presentation. To keep things in 2017, um, the Trump administration has 
suggested a uh, strengthening of economic sanctions on North Korea, potentially to include secondary sanctions um, that would include uh, Chinese companies that do business with North Korea. Um, in part to, um, I think part of their intention is to help change some of China's calculus. To, to what? Can you speak to change China's calculus on these issues okay. to increase the cost to China of continued inaction. Um, now, of course, these sanctions, if the, if the United States were to uh, put in place secondary sanctions that affect Chinese companies, um, it would have a, a stronger bite if European countries were to follow suit. So I'd be interested in, in uh, your, your thoughts, especially, uh, uh, Francois, if you, uh, your sense of Europe's ability or willingness to, to also maybe ha uh, have some turbulence in their economic relationship with China um, over the North Korea issue. I don't think the, I don't think the topic overlaps so much, the uh, broader economic relationship with China. Uh, Especially, on, I mean, implementation of sanctions and stuff, that's sometimes different. It's been difficult within Europe and Iran, for example, or, or, or Sudan. There have been difficulties, as you know. But on North Korea, in the first round, for example, the Europeans very quickly uh, followed suit and imposed their own additional uh, sanctions and criteria. Uh, on North Korea, I don't think there is really a, a debate uh, on that. And I don't think it's likely to become a bargaining point, for example, with the Trump administration on, on, on anything else. I mean, I would be rather optimistic, optimistic about that, skeptical that that brings a, a, a resolution of the, of the basic uh, issue, because uh, what I take from, from, from Bob's speech is what I absolutely believe that, yes, there are overlapping priorities, but priorities number one are widely different between the US and China, and that remains the case and until we are able to, to, to reconnect those two priorities, regime, no regime change and an end to the, to the programs, uh, we won't achieve any results. Thank you. I think we had one more question here. Yes. Can you wait for the microphone, please? And then uh, identify yourself as well. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Bill Primosh, uh, Montgomery College. Uh, just following up on, on the Korea issue, uh, just two points. One, uh, uh, we talk about Western sanctions, but the Chinese have a, effectively a stranglehold over the North Korean economy. They could very easily increase the pressure. And it's puzzling, given their interest in not having conflict on the Korean Peninsula and the consequences that you mentioned, why they aren't putting more pressure on. Now, they've restricted uh, coal imports which will have a big impact on the North Korea. But it, it's puzzling as to why they haven't put more pressure on. The second question maybe related is, apparently Secretary Tillerson had a very good meeting in Beijing. President Chu is uh, gonna have a visit to Washington sometime, I think in the next several weeks or a couple months. Does that indicate that maybe uh, the Chinese have made a decision to cooperate more closely and maybe put more pressure on the North Koreans and might, might that be a kind of turning point for the Chinese and being maybe more constructive throughout uh, Asia, including in the South China Islands uh, question? Um, my own view here is that uh, the Chinese have had the same approach 
to the United States and North Korea for 25 years, and I don't see it changing. I see them wishing to make the United States happy because they know that in the United States we, we ask everybody, every new administration, to put pressure on China, and every administration says, we sure will, um, and they uh, continue to do what they've done. Even the coal thing, I mean, they've reached, they've reached the limits of what the UN permits under the sanctions to ship, and so they made an announcement they, that they weren't going to ship any more this year. Well, they shouldn't ship any more this year. This was, this was not a new bit of pressure from Beijing. And at the end of the day, for the first part of your question, uh, I think they, they, they are very careful about moderating what they permit as um, uh, uh, sanctions, which they believe they have some obligation to permit as a member of the international community, and they don't want to be singled out as, as violating the sanctions. On the other hand, they are going to make sure that regime continues, and that regime knows that that is the calculation in Beijing. So I, 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 I have always been concerned about is that the enthusiasm in this country to get North Korea off our plate will lead us to say, let's put it on China's plate. And there are two things wrong with that. The Chinese will not deal with it the way we want it dealt with. And besides, it is right now the biggest international security issue in Asia-Pacific region, a region in which we are in a competition with China and subcontracting that problem to China strikes me as not geostrategically smart. We have 28,000 American troops deployed there. We do exercises all the time. This is us here. It is for us to deal with. Use the Chinese if we can, but there's a limit to what you can expect. That would be my take. Any other thoughts on that before we move to the next? Well, well thanks very much, everyone. I think we're, we're essentially out of time. Um, I really learned a lot from this conversation. Um, we're going to be mixing the, the very broad concepts we've heard about with some of the very specific initiatives as we continue this uh, track of projects and analyses. So please um, give us your thoughts on Twitter or in person uh, on this set of issues. And thanks very much for coming. And please join me <coughs> in thanking our panelists.